Today's episode is a conversation about the Cold War, really up to about 1949, with a friend of mine, Ian Richardson. Ian is an absolute wealth of knowledge on the topic. The conversation was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Anyways, hope you enjoy. Before we get rolling, you mind giving just a quick background on yourself, uh, kind of what you're doing today, what your background is in with, uh, with military history? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I've worked about just about a decade now, uh, paid in the museum industry. I've worked in local and um, upper level stuff. My most recent gig, I worked for three years for the First Division Museum at uh, Cantini Park out in the west suburbs of Chicago. And uh, I did a lot of research, um, interpretation, and uh, presentation uh, about military vehicles and the history of the First Division in particular. But uh, my focus has always been 20th century stuff. And I'm also a captain in the U.S. Army Reserve, and uh, I was in Iraq all through uh, 2020. So I just got back from that. There we go. So um, Ian and I are in the same unit in the Reserve. And when we get there, and we're busy some of the times, not busy other times. When we're not busy, you end up rambling for long periods of time about military history. So I think we probably could have just hit record at some point, and it would have been fine. But thought it might make, some, uh, might make more sense to kind of dial it into something specific. So let's do the Cold War, man. Um, where, where would you say the Cold War really began? Was this something that kicked off during World War II, or is there kind of a definitive start point after? Well, to kind of put a, put a pinpoint on where the Cold War starts, you really kind of have to look at the origins of the conflict kind of between um, the American ideals of democracy and uh, capitalism, kind of where they intersect in conflict, especially with, um, especially uh, socialism and um, the the wave of communism that kind of swept through uh, our country as well um, as Europe uh, in the early 1900s, especially during and following World War One. Um, I've kind of always seen the Cold War really starting with what we generally kind of view as the the, the first uh, Red Scare. So that's really about um, 1919, 1920 really starts to die off by late 20, early 21. But um, you see, especially that time, this big rise in, um, in post-World War I, we have the chaos all over Europe um, and the, the conditions that that war brings on the societies um, that were engaged in it. Um, it really starts this massive cultural upheaval and that brings to the surface new ideas, new ways of trying to change things. And in a lot of these countries, you know, not necessarily full-on capitalism or full-on democracy were being implemented. So a lot of people were going one way or another all at once. And that's when you see kind of the rise of um, what we think of today as modern socialism and uh, early forms of communism um, on the, the far left um, kind of being implemented. Uh, but in the, in the United States in particular is where you really see this root of the conflict between, between communism and democracy slash, you know, capitalism. It's, it's this conflict in 1918, 1919, where this first Red Scare grows out of where the U.S. government, even though we've just finished World War I, is still very much in this wartime mentality. We're still, we still have so much regulation and crackdown on, uh, and crackdowns on um, our society that we don't talk a whole lot about now, but um, the idea of all these programs, early forms of what we would consider to be kind of thrown in with what we think of as the Patriot Act today. Um, they, these 
all these things and the early the early surveillance and the early crackdown and censorship um, in that environment you have growing uh, growing dissent uh, against a lot of um, a lot of ideals in the U.S. of capitalism and democracy, especially amongst the poorer class and disenfranchised. Um, and so in the chaos of 1918 and 1919, you have a spate of bombings from anarchists um, and a rise in socialist movements. You have um, fomentation of these, um, these movements by groups like um, the International Workers, uh, the IWW, or Wobblies as they're called. Um, this also has a whole lot of other connotations that tie in with, um, with uh, racial tension in the country at the same time. Um, and that's a whole other discussion, but um, just know that it's kind of tied in there. Um, but this, this tension, socialism and communism, seeing what's going on in Russia, seeing the upheaval in especially Germany, we often overlook the fact that the, um, at this time, communism is very much being linked to nowadays since with our long history with the Cold War, we link it almost exclusively with Russia and the Eastern Bloc. But yeah. Germany is really where a lot of this really comes from. Um, but at that time, in the chaos of Germany, um, there was fighting in the streets in Germany. There was fighting all over Russia. There was even a significant movement, um, socialist and communist movement in France, uh, which really played out all the way through the 50s and 60s. We don't hear a whole lot now, but de Gaulle in the post-war era dealt a lot with um, a lot of um, communist sympathies and communist uprisings and, and, and movements and labor movements in, in France in the post-war period. But um, that's where you see in this environment kind of all these, the anarchists, the socialists, the, the um, Bolshev Bolsheviki, as the Americans kind of start to refer to them, um, and, and communism, all gets kind of ro rolled into one big blob of leftism. And that's very much jumped on by the, the, um, the still kind of constrictive policies of the U.S. government at that time that was in a, a, a war kind of economy still footing. And so that's where you see these first real... Um, popping up of the of the the u.s the west versus east kind of mentality in terms of the politics of communism versus uh democracy the west versus the east and this in particular is played out by uh the u.s intervention in russia and you and i were kind of talking about this the other day yeah. um but it's, it's an episode that we don't often hear about especially in the u.s because our involvement was so brief it was very intense but brief um but i'll give a very short synopsis, which is essentially Wilson uh, was pressured by the English and French uh, in mid-1918 to send a contingent of U.S. soldiers uh, to various points in Russia uh, to try and aid them in, in quashing what would become the Bolshevik government um, and the early, early Red Army, um, and aiding directly and indirectly the white armies, the, the anti-communist armies, um, which is also a very vague term, by the way, um, there's the white Russians, the anarchist armies, the green army, the peasant armies. There's all these myriad of other factors going on, but loosely the non-communists versus the communists. And so we send in August of 1918, um, we send troops from two different units, one unit based in Detroit and one that was on uh, occupation duty in the Philippines. One half goes to the northwestern Russian front up in Arkhangelsk and Murmansk. Um, those become the the polar bear expedition, as it's called. Great book that just came out all about it by the same title. Highly recommend it. Um, came out about two years ago. But those guys from Detroit went up there and fought largely, a uh, limited contingent of Americans fought largely under British command. Um, and then you had Americans uh, who were dispatched to Vladivostok on the far east end of Russia. And Wilson passed it off as this um, 
going back to reclaim supplies and, and, and materiel that we had given to Tsarist Russia with, and a government which no longer existed. In reality, by the time we got on ground there, late in the war, September 1918, none of those stocks were there. There was really no reason for us to be there. But we, we hung around because we were there ostensibly under the command, really, of the British and French. The British and French were far more invested in putting down the communist revolution than we were politically. So our contingent there got tied up in the fighting and ended up fighting directly the early Red Army in the Northwest and in the, in the East. Um, U.S. fighting U.S. fighting Russian soldiers. Like direct combat. Correct. Correct. We were fighting uh, Russian, the early Russian Red Army um, in large groups, um, very, you know, disheveled, very unorganized, or organized, organized enough to mount attacks against us, but disorganized enough and, and ill-equipped enough that, you know, a group of a platoon of our guys could put down three, four hundred Bolsheviki, as they began to call them. And it was, it was just atrocious. Um, but the fighting really was not sustainable for the Americans. And so ultimately, we knew we didn't need to be there. There was zero appetite for the Americans to stay there, especially after the massive losses we'd incurred in our very short time in World War I. As a result, we pull out in largely, for the most part, we pull out by mid to late 1919. Uh, but there were Americans at home calling for them to come back. They said, I know they're communists there but we don't need to be there. The war is over, come home. But that experience, um, while brief and intense for us, largely gets swallowed up in the post-war elation. The Soviets never forgot that. And there's one point at which Khrushchev refers to it as, as us. I can't remember if it was Khrushchev or Stalin later on who refers to this as us trying to strangle communism in its cradle. And this, this really kind of exemplifies just how much this episode, and actually, I believe Khrushchev, uh, very early on, uh, he was, gosh, I can't remember how young he was, but he was a, a, a very low-level commander in the Red Army in on that front briefly um, at that time in 1918-1919. And he, he certainly never forgot it. And many of the Russian high command that fought in the Civil War also never forgot it from a political standpoint. So that really cements this idea of the anti-U.S. and also anti-Allied um, idea that really grows to fruition in the late World War II period. Um, kind of goes through a low lull because we mend political relations. We acknowledge the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. And ironically, during their massive industrial buildup through the 20s and 30s, that kind of Stalin's forced industrialization of the country, uh, part of that is, is spurred on by people like Henry Ford and American industrialists who are, have perfected scientific manufacturing, and the Soviets acknowledged that our manufacturing methods were superior. It, because it's it's hard to forget that we really did produce a lot uh, in the wartime and pre-war period as, as America. America was the world's manufacturing hub. I really think about the U.S. in the lead up to World War One and right after as kind of the world's China, or at least Europe's China. We produced everything for everybody and the steel we were producing the raw materials we were pushing out all these things were important and the soviets early on acknowledged that we had processes that worked very well they borrowed from us and in many respects bought outright they bought an entire ford factory most famously and actually disassembled it boxed it up shifted to the soviet union rebuilt it and brought americans over to actually help them put it back together and show them how to implement uh scientific manufacturing um uh, processes. So 
that kind of goes through a cold period or a cold-ish period uh, leading up to World War II. Was that done, trying to think of the right way to phrase this, there was a lot of help. I mean, if we look at Lynn Lee's during World War II, there was a lot of help to a lot of allies, um, but there's some very obvious support provided to, say, the British Empire, but there was also a ton that went to the Soviet Union. Was that done with, like, while looking over the shoulder a little bit? Because you mentioned that there was some distrust. The Soviet Union distrusted the United States dating back to the days of the Russian Empire, 1918, 1919. So when the U.S. was providing goods during Lend-Lease, what was the mindset there? Was it, I mean, it wasn't true friendship is kind of what you're getting at, right? No, and it, it, it was all primarily really under the guise of this kind of, you know, the, the enemy of Miami is my friend that really is what a lot of it boils down to while a lot of our propaganda. And if you go back and look, especially um, early 42, 43, you can see some glowing reviews of the Soviet union. I actually have a, in my collection somewhere, I've got an issue of life magazine. There's a very infamous issue of life magazine from 1943 with Stalin on the cover. And the bulk of this life magazine issue is dedicated to explaining to Americans the Soviet Union, explaining to them, this is our ally, this is Stalin, and then painting in a very rosy uh, picture the idea of the revolution, the ideals that led to, that, that Lenin drew from to create communism and, and create the revolution in Russia. And this, this magazine is a really good, really good example of just how rosy we had to try and paint the picture. And on top of that, the Russians were, were desperate. Um, they, now, don't get me wrong, Lenin Lease is kind of due to the Cold War and kind of the lens through which we've had to view the Soviet Union over 45 years after World War II, um, the role of Lend-Lease has kind of been, I don't want to say blown out of proportion, but it's been its been overstated in a lot of places. Um, the problem with Lend-Lease was that it didn't necessarily always go where it needed to go to the extent it needed to. While we provided a lot of stuff to the Soviets, it A, didn't always make it there, and B, when it did, I mean, you and I both know how logistics work, man. It's the, a good example is Romania. Down in, down um, at your warm water points uh, ports, one, there weren't that many places you could get stuff into Russia without the Germans being a threat of it on the high seas. And by the time it finally gets there, it has to be a port that's not frozen. So half of the year, you're kind of limited on options. But by the time it finally gets there, let's say Romania and the, and the, the southeastern front in particular, you had one Soviet army. You see a lot of photos from uh, Romania and, and, uh, and Hungary and uh, Prague and Budapest, these armies in the South front, you see a lot of photos of them where their ratio might be 50 or 60% American Lend-Lease trucks or Jeeps and tanks. But then you might see another army at the exact same time on the Northern front that has nothing. They've never seen an American tank. So it really comes down to whatever your resource was, because those guys down in the Southern front were at the ports where this stuff was coming in. They were going, great, give us these trucks. We might paint it, we might not, we'll hop in it and drive it. There's some examples of Jeeps even with the U.S. The U.S. VIN number all, the, all on the side of the hood. The stars, they didn't touch them at all. Other times they do other things. It was a lot of research I did at my old job, but anyway. I was going to say, I feel like when I see pictures now of Soviet vehicles, um, they're stripped of that. Like, they're very clearly Soviet. Or maybe there's a better way to say it. I feel like the pictures of Soviet equipment I see is not American. If that makes sense. Is it? Is it? Did a lot of those photos kind of go away, or it's, 
it's mostly because for the for the most part, most of the rolling stock the Russians had was Russian. The vast majority of their rolling stock and their their vehicles were Russian made. It's just that their the lend lease, the American stuff really was kind of filling the gap in that first year when they took a massive hit. That was the first part of the war when the Soviets they just got their asses handed to them. And we filled the gap for a little time while they reassembled their factories they were disassembling and putting behind the Ural Mountains, giving them time to get their their industrial capacity up. But once their industrial capacity was up by 43, man, those you could not out well, the only people that could outproduce the Soviets were us. And you know, Detroit and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Chicago, we were cranking out stuff left and right. And the Soviets were right up there with us by the end, especially in terms of industrial capacity. Um, but Lend lease is a big part of this kind of looking over my shoulder, but also, you know, I need to make sure these guys win. Um, we don't want the Nazis to win. Um, and that's, that's a big part of it. And it was really rolled into lar- more largely at that point, us throwing stuff because we may not have had troops trained. We may not have known what we were doing in the battlefield. But the one thing we could do early on in the war that all our other allies that we were trying to help against Hitler couldn't do was make stuff. We could make stuff like crazy. And that's really the American industrial capacity that we brought to the table is just, it's, it's, you really can't even account for it because it's just such a huge factor. Um, and you know, the fact that we were already, already helping Britain prior to this and France, um, with it, with airplanes and other equipment, vehicles, small arms, ammo, you name it. Um, the Russians got rolled up into it. Now, don't get me wrong because we were always a little wary of the Russians, we'll say, um, we were always a little bit hesitant. So there were certain things we, you know, we weren't going to send them. There were certain things we, if we were going to send it to them, we weren't going to send a ton. But um, some of the things we did send might've been top of the line. Like for example, our GMC six by six trucks, they loved our GMC six by six and four by four trucks so much that in 1948, they basically reverse engineered some of them and made their own copy of that truck, which ended up being produced well into the sixties and seventies the Chinese copied the exact same truck and they produced it in the seventies and eighties and nineties. And this truck was so popular and reliable that it became the base of other equipment that they use and the basis of multiple uh, launch rocket systems, things like that, the BM 13 and the BM 11 gra- or, uh, multiple launch rocket system, the Katusha, it's pretty well known. Um, were built on uh, GMC chassis and GMC trucks that we sent them. But so they, this, yeah. before we get too far down a rabbit hole in world war two, so I want to bring it a little higher level real quick to get your thoughts on this. Was the coordination of World War II a, was it viewed between the two countries as just a temporary truce, if you will? I'm thinking of brothers fighting and like every so often you got to break it up. Or were there real thoughts that that coming together over the common enemy might change that relationship going forward essentially did everybody think that we were going to get up through this fight and get right back to some level of competition so i think i think for the most part you see you always see a skepticism even amongst eisenhower most notably you see skepticism of course amongst guys like Patton. um but that that i think is in doing no small part to personalities eisenhower was always the politician he was the guy who had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because he couldn't get into combat in World War I when he was working and in charge of all these guys below him that had this combat experience in World War I. He, but the thing that he had that a lot of these guys lacked when compared to, say, a MacArthur or a Patton was that Eisenhower was a politician. He was very good at rubbing shoulders and making sure that people stayed happy. And 
you actually see that kind of play out even uh, with, with leadership as high as the president. FDR got along very, or I shouldn't say very well, but far better with Stalin than Truman did. Truman notes multiple times after the fact that he was not a fan of, of Truman and Truman was not a fan of Stalin. Uh, Truman was also far more skeptical of the communists than FDR had ever been. Um, but there's a skepticism this whole time that really it's going to go back to competition and they can't, in closed circles, there are ideas of, we can't let them, we want the Russians to win, but we don't want them to win too well. The, mo- the, uh-huh. the, the biggest idea that comes out of this really is your idea of, um, of not opening a second front um, for the Russians. Now we have all sorts of reasons why um, that play into this, but of course Stalin is asking for a second front and a second front to divert um, the to divert the Nazis as early as 1942, and it takes us all the way to June 6th of 1944. And I guess Africa you can consider to be a second front, but it was a second front aimed at largely British colonies, British holdings, French holdings. Um, and it didn't do a whole lot for the Russians at that time. Um, and they were going to go through the soft underbelly, or at least that's, that's the idea we've kind of coalesced around afterward. But there's a lot of talk over Churchill. Really, if it, it, there was a feeling of us owing the, uh, the British more and having a closer relationship with the British. So we were going to take their, their needs into account before, our own, uh, before the Soviets, um, of course. But I don't think that ever left anybody. There was certainly a lot of friendly banter and a lot of getting along of the parties, but there was always a skepticism. And when you have generals like MacArthur and Patton and others in those high ranks that are, that are saying the things they are in closed company and public, um, it, it wasn't going to help the situation. And I don't think that was ever going to change. What did change, what really changed was just how quickly the Russians took the land they did and where they stopped at the end of the war and the concessions in many ways that the allies had to make when negotiating um, at Potsdam in 1945. Um, there were a lot of concessions made to try and bring the French to the table um, that they had to give to the Russians. For example, um, the, there was an agreement in the Potsdam Agreement of 1945 uh, when so the Potsdam Agreement, for those who don't know. Yeah, dive into that real quick. Yeah, so the Potsdam Agreement um, was in 1945. Um, and it was basically the last agreement that really outlined the post-war world and, and how we were going to treat Germany. Um, it was this idea of dividing up the country and later dividing up, uh, dividing up Berlin and also Austria, fun fact. Uh, Austria, most people don't realize, was not only divided up into multiple sectors in 1945, but so was Vienna. Vienna was treated, um, was in, fully inside the Soviet sector of Austria, um, just like Berlin. Uh, divided up into four different uh, areas and then an international zone kind of in the center. Um, but by 1955, Austria gained uh, its, its own statehood again, um, unlike Germany. But I, I digress. Um, but at Potsdam, uh, this is the discussion and the, the um, this is really what formed the post-war world and what really set us up for what would become a lot of the early tension uh, in the Cold War, and, and I would argue really some of the, the hottest moments of the Cold War um, versus maybe the early 80s, um, but some, uh, well, in, in the early 60s, because the Cold War, as anyone knows, it kind of ebbs and flows in, in, in heat, we'll say, um, but the first real test of that, and also of the UN, um, is in the late 40s, and that also kind of manifests itself in Korea as well, but, the, but uh, Potsdam is where you get that agreement to divide Germany 
and concessions have to be made between the Soviets, between the British and the Americans. And the British and Americans are early on realizing, yes, we don't want Russia to have this much say over the countries it has. This is already going against the ideals we have of letting those countries kind of do their own thing, leave them alone. They've already been through a war, but they realize the Soviets are very powerful, although at this time battered, but powerful. But they also acknowledge begrudgingly that the Soviets have been through the ringer. They have really taken a beat. And their population has suffered immensely. The Soviet army has suffered immensely. The numbers that they lose in the war are just staggering. The, the, they, they lost what America lost in terms of casualties in World War II just in the first three or four months of 1941. The, the Russians go through even, even more than that. Um, it's, it's astounding the, the losses that the Russians get. And when they finally kind of get their stuff together, and they finally coalesce and push back. They keep going, and they keep going, and they did not want to stop because they were in full-on revenge mode. Um, but they acknowledge this at Potsdam, and as a result, as a result, they give them a lot of um, concessions. Uh, one good example would be um, a part of the Potsdam Agreement was actually to, in exchange for trying to bring France in um, as a fourth member of the Quadripartite Agreement, in dividing Germany, while they get a small portion, they weren't originally supposed to be at the table. Um, but part of this agreement to let them in was actually to allow the Soviets 10% of Germany's industrial capacity to be packaged up and shipped to the Soviet Union in the first two years after the war. Um, this is this is just one example um, of the kind of concessions they were having to make because they they acknowledged and realized that the Soviets had lost a lot. Um, but we get. The war ends, um, and also part of this was the begrudging acknowledgement that uh, Russia had promised to help fight the Japanese once the war on the Western Front ends. And this also kind of brings us into more conflict with the West in that the Russians very, very quickly um, are not only routing the Japanese because they're falling back, but they make it all the way up into what would have been Hokkaido in northern Japan. And the northern islands today that they still kind of fight over with Japan, funnily enough. Um, but, and there's a lot of debate over whether or not the nuclear weapons, the use of nuclear weapons in 1945 in the end, is on equal par a political move to scare the Russians as it is a tactical move to halt the Japanese. Um, I don't want to get into the, the debating of it, but I will just say a long that conversation in itself, yeah. Yes, but I will just say that that is that is still a debate today, and there is there are some things that support that this was definitely not just a tactical move, the use of nuclear weapons. Um, hey, it sounds like it sounds like at the end of the Second World War that the U.S. and the West was doing a lot of catching up. Is it fair to say that the Soviet Union maybe saw the Cold War and saw the implications of the Cold War? better or appreciated it more than the United States. Maybe we had rose-colored glasses. It seems like one thing after another, we're kind of trying to, you know, not get caught with our pants down when it comes to the Soviet Union. I think, I think the Soviet Union saw, they had a, once the momentum was behind them, when they were no longer existentially scared, they were, because for several years, they were truly terrified for their existence. Um, after 43, especially after Stalingrad, but into 44, they have a m- momentum behind them, and they are already starting to set up um, 
shadow governments and they're trying to bring, they're having their agents in all these countries that they're coming through and occupying, pulling out communists out of the woodwork. Anybody who identified as a communist in that country prior and they're saying, you'll do, you're going to be part of this new government. You're going to help us build it. We're going to have free and fair elections. But then, oh, lo and behold, look at that. The communists win in this country that's also 90% occupied by Soviet troops. You know, it's, they, they see this and they're building it as they go. Whereas the Americans, because we are, we really are smaller than the Soviet Union, just on a military scale, because I mean, at our height, I think we, we had about 13 million people under arms. That's between the Navy, armed, armed uh, ground forces, everything. The Soviet Union has around 30 million uh, under arms between 41 and 45 at its peak. Uh, it's, it's just mind bogglingly large. And of course they have to de, uh, they have to demobilize afterward, just like us, but because they have these numbers, because they have this spread and this momentum behind them, they can, they can start to set up groundwork to give them an advantage in these countries. Um, and, and there are a lot of countries that they, that they had influence in that we don't think about today that didn't end up going communist, but you know, countries like Italy and France, uh, for example. Um, and a first actual, a first real test of this is Greece. We often forget about it, but the Greek civil war um, begins almost immediately after um, the peace agreements are signed in 1945 and 46. Um, and fighting breaks out between communist-backed forces in Greece and, and British-backed and later kind of ostensibly U.S. forces. Um, and while it turns out for the good, um, the, you know, the communist forces in a lot of these places were trying to take over actively. And you, and you have outliers that kind of kind of break the mold, like Yugoslavia, where, yes, they were communist, but they were not fans of Stalin or Stalinism or the way in which he ruled. So you have guys like Tito, Josip Broz Tito, who later becomes the uh, communist dictator, for lack of a better word, of Yugoslavia. But he goes another route. He, they, get, they are recipients of the Marshall Plan. They are recipients of American aid because while they are socialists, they're kind of a softer form of it. And they worked very closely with American allies and British allies uh, in trying to throw off the yoke of, of Nazism. So you have some people who break from that. Um, and later on in the 60s, you also have other countries that break from the Warsaw Pact and the, the East. But, but the Soviets definitely know what's coming, and they lay the ground for it early, whereas by the time we get, we're racing and panting real hard just to catch up to Germany. By the time the Russians get to Czechoslovakia and Berlin and Eastern Germany and Austria, um, there was actually several weeks where, uh, back to Austria being a, a, a broken up uh, country, uh, the, the Russians actually got there before everybody else and kind of had to wait. And throughout the entirety of the occupation of Austria, the, the Russians always outnumbered the British and American um, occupation forces by like three to one. It was, there was always a lot of them there because they beat us there. And they saw it coming, they beat us to the punch, and we kind of had to just react to it. So that was a good lead in to another question I had, which is when I think of the Cold War in Europe, I think of Germany and Berlin as kind of being the nexus is the term that comes to mind. Why? Like what, why, why did that happen in Berlin? Why was that such a point of contention from day one? Well, I think it's, it's that nexus because it's where it's the, it's the physical embodiment of the cold war. Right. And it, and it exists before the wall and after the wall goes up for 45 years, give or take Berlin is where we see most obviously on display in front of cameras, in front of politicians, in front of people every single day. You see a division 
and a stark contrast of East and West in the same city. And, and this is by no means an isolated thing. This happens all through Germany, all through Austria, all through other countries that get divided through this time. But it's, it's that nexus because they, it, the other thing about it that we so often forget, especially in the general public, is that Berlin is inside the Soviet zone. So there's your conflict already. The fact that just to get to this city that is supposedly you know, broken up and equally distributed to the allies, you have to go through one of those, those four to get there. And it just so about, happens. Can you talk about that for a second? Because that's a little confusing. Yeah. So, so the thing is, is uh, when at Potsdam, when uh, Germany is divided and later on, it's decided that Germany is broken up into four sector, uh, sectors. Of course, you have American, British, French, and Soviet. The Soviet occupation area ends, ends up being what we call the German Democratic Republic. Of course, any country that starts with Democratic People's Republic of or what have you, we know where that's going, right? But um, the Western sector is the three um, Western allies, so Britain, France, the U.S. The Eastern sector is uh, larger than any of the other individual sectors. Uh, it's not larger than all three, but it's, it's large enough that that becomes what becomes East Germany. The Western sector becomes West Germany later on when they become their own nation states. That's not for another five-ish years yet. Um, but when they're divided, Berlin is in Brandenburg. Brandenburg is in kind of Eastern Central Germany. And Berlin is such a large city and they, they build it up in the same way that they do Vienna and Austria in a way that it itself becomes a microcosm for Germany. It has its own sectors. It has an Eastern sector, and then a British, French, American sector. But really what it comes down to is an East sector and a West sector later on, because of course the French, British, and Americans are going to get along much better than the Soviets. And they're all together, close together. They weren't divided. Now, side note, the Austrian sectors are really funky if you ever look at them on a map. Whereas it's very simple in Germany, there's an Eastern sector and then the Western sectors are kind of all together. In Austria, there's an Eastern sector, a kind of South sector and another Western sector that all belong to the Soviets, whereas the American, French and British are kind of all thrown together. It's bizarre and compared to Germany, it's very interesting and I highly recommend people look into it. But Berlin is in the middle of this Eastern Soviet sector. And part of this agreement, that what becomes kind of vaguely known as the quadripartite agreement, the, the four-party agreement, is that it's the Soviet sector, East Germany. Berlin is in it, and Berlin is an international city. And that international city allows, has to, by the agreement of the Allies, and this extends all the way into the end of the Cold War, they are allowed equal access, equal and fair access, to Berlin as an international city of its sectors. So that means if Americans or French or British soldiers want to leave their sectors in Western Germany and go to their sectors in Berlin, they have to take essentially one highway into and through Eastern Germany, the Soviet sector. So they have to exit the Western sector, enter the Eastern sector, drive all the way to Berlin, and then be allowed into Berlin and into their sectors. And this becomes the access to Berlin we we're talking about, because that access is debated. And the Russians know that that access can be fought over. And early on, they think they have leverage over the Western allies in that they can shut it off because they have that one road into Berlin, or they think they do, or at least one ground road into it, or rails and you know, but they, they know they have that leverage, and so they cut that off. And when they cut that leverage off by ground, the Americans and British and French, but primarily the Americans and British, um, do what's called the Berlin Airlift. And that is almost an entire year from 1948 to 49, 
um, American troops and British troops fly and do an air bridge, they call it, from their western sectors into Berlin in the eastern sector of Germany, or the eastern half of Germany. And they fly into there, and they run the risk every time of being shot down by Russian ground aircraft crew, or uh, uh, ADA crews and uh, air defense crews, um, but they never pull the trigger to the extent that it causes international international incident. So this becomes the Berlin airlift, and it's all started because the Soviets are trying to wrestle full control of Berlin and wrestle full control of their sector by cutting off the land route to Berlin. And we get around it, we do it so long and so well and so efficiently that they eventually give up in 1949 and they allow Allied access back in Berlin. But this access to Berlin is going to continue to be an issue throughout the Cold War, especially through the first 20-ish, 25 years or so, um, that is going to constantly cause tension uh, between the two. And that's um, very, very important to remember because it's this strange, Potsdam and the Quadripartite Agreement has so many strange little clauses that would that were supposed to be throwaways, but they're really small ways that each side can kind of take advantage of the other. Yeah. Um, there's one really good example. There's a clause in there later on about allowing each sector to have an international mission, essentially. It's um, each sector, French, British, Soviet, American, can have at any given time a vehicle of their choosing with representatives from their sector in the other country's sectors. And that meant British and French, British and American, etc. But that also meant British troops in Eastern Germany. That meant American troops in Eastern Germany. And there's a very good uh, book out. It's called, um, uh, gosh, Live and Let Spy. Very good book. It was a it was a journal and um, biography from a guy who was part of the last Bricksmiths team, is what they called it. Um, Bricksmiths were these teams that were allowed to, by the Quadripartite Agreement, drive into East Germany with their British vehicle and special camera equipment and whatever. And essentially, it allowed them to legally spy in the sectors of each of each <laughs> ally and they and they would drive around the, th- the key was they couldn't get caught or they were not supposed to get caught taking pictures and recording things and things like that so they were uniformed personnel in military vehicles that just had to be very sneaky about how they did things and how how long they stayed in different places but they both sides acquired a lot of intelligence on the other through these little loopholes in the quadripartite agreement and there were some small examples of these little teams being captured and in extreme situations, maybe being killed or, or, or beat up or what have you. But generally, if they were caught by armed forces or security um, personnel in that region, they were supposed to be, by international law, through the Quadripartite Agreement, let go. But very fascinating little tidbit of the division of Berlin. So you mentioned how nobody opened fire when the, during the Berlin airlift. The Russians, the Soviets, didn't open fire, but they could have. Or I guess you said nothing to the point where it would lead to a major conflict. If you look at the first 10 years, you know, was it realistic that a conflict could have kicked off? Or now knowing what we know, was that not really the cards? I think it was always possible. The um, the Americans knew it. The Russians knew it. The Americans also early on knew that everyone was very, very tired. (laughs) Everyone was very tired from the war. But the fact that you had all these occupation troops that were fresh, that were new, all this equipment, and the fact that Germany quickly became this front line for the newest equipment and the newest surveillance and the best troops, it's eerily similar to kind of where we're shifting east with Poland today. 
Um, but you, these ideas of the best troops were always kept forward at the front. Um, by the way, officially, the, the Russian troops in Germany are later referred to as the Group of Soviet Forces Germany, uh, GSFG. Um, they, so those are the German, the German armies and the German divisions that are permanently stationed in East Germany um, that are there all the time. And they always outnumber the Americans, um, even from the beginning, just by virtue of the, the size of the Soviet army. And that's something to also remember that at any given time, American policy is dictated by the fact that they know, they know at any given time, Berlin, especially the Berlin Brigade and the Berlin Garrison, the U.S. troops and British troops and French troops in Berlin are always going to lose because they're surrounded at any given time. They're inside East Germany, surrounded by Soviets. Also, the way Soviet doctrine works, they would not have stood a chance. They knew anybody, and it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around when you're thinking about if you're reading firsthand accounts of soldiers in the Cold War, guys in the Berlin Brigade that are out there saying at, at heightened times in the 60s, they know they're going to be steamrolled. And it's a weird thing to kind of wrap your mind around because now we look at them and think, oh, Cold War, you were just there. No, there wasn't any real fighting. Well, of course it wasn't any real fighting. But had it been, that's that's a lot of stress on an individual soldier, some PFC snuffy who doesn't know what's going on around there. But they they were always outnumbered. And even the Americans on the continent were always outnumbered because, the it, plain and simple, Russia was connected by land to the lines that they were there. We had a whole ocean across. Britain had a little bit of an ocean across, and France didn't have a massive military, and they had a large military, but not a massive one. So there's later on in the Cold War all sorts of circumstances that, that are dictated by this idea that we have troops on the continent there to show to have a show of force, but they cannot win tactically on the ground, at least not immediately. And that that influences the deployment of missiles and air defense and large formations of modern equipment and tanks to kind of show off. It became this weird hybrid of, we're probably not going to get into war, but if we do, we need to make sure that the stuff we have there is capable of doing the most damage and doing the best we can in the short amount of time we'll have. Because there were all sorts of estimates at any given time, given these, especially the combat troops in Berlin, in Western Germany, that you know if the Russians invade today, you are going to be wiped out at this time. You, you know, there's the, the best know. running one is like the best Ameri American troops in Germany could hope for was like 10 days on a Soviet advance. And in Berlin, it was like 72 hours. It was a very short amount of time. Um, and as a result, that also dictates the lives of these soldiers. When you get down to the, the micro level, and especially in the kind of stories you tell, um, the micro level for a lot of these guys is, is constant readiness, or at least a far higher readiness than they would have been CONUS. Um, same thing on the Soviet side. The East German military, for example, and the Soviet military were kept at a level of readiness that, it, that we may think military is hard. We may think that we're kept at a good level of readiness, even on active duty. But the, if you were an officer or a junior soldier or what have you in the, on the, in the East, you were liable at any given time for drills at 2 a.m. any day, even if you were on leave. And you had to show up, be back at home in 12 hours. It's, it's not unlike kind of the 82nd Airborne and their, their QRF kind of guys. Um, but imagine that, but across the entire military all the time in, in a whole country. And that's the level of kind of tension that there is at any given time. And especially the East will overreact in many, in many cases to small things that we don't think much of. But that tension of the ability at a, at a, at a flick of a switch for those sides to kind of, and for the East, especially to engulf the West, is going to dictate a lot of policy going forward. And that's an important thing to remember from here out especially. Now, so when I think of the Cold War, 
something that always comes to mind is the mutually assured destruction. Both sides had massive nuclear arsenals and could destroy the world 20 times over, whatever crazy number it is, right? But there was a window in there that you're talking about right now between 1945 and I think, I think 49, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and the U.S. had, U.S. was the only country in the world with atomic weapons. Yet the Soviet Union is, were, were kind of button heads. To me, looking back, that seems crazy. Like, why were they so convinced that if we got into a conflict, we wouldn't just use these atomic weapons that they didn't have? And they knew they didn't have, or at least for a couple of years. Well, part of this kind of plays into, there's a, there's a culture and a mindset in the East, especially in the Soviet Union, and maybe not so much in the now newly communist Eastern European countries, but especially in the Soviet Army, that has just been through this fresh hell that was World War II. They know mass casualties are a possibility, and in many cases, their doctrine accounts for it but they know that they can get through it if they have to. They have the people to try and get through these things. Sure, they might lose strategic sites, but they, they also have their own intelligence telling them, sure, they have nuclear weapons right now, but A, we're working on our own, and B, they don't have enough to do any real damage to us, or rather, not catastrophic damage. Catastrophic in the mind and the idea that there's, there are vastly different ideas of acceptable losses to the Soviets than there are acceptable losses to Americans, because the culture and the the real skin of the teeth narrative that was world war ii for the soviets really defines their whole country moving forward to this day even russia and a lot of this the former soviet union that that near-death experience for the soviet union as a country shapes a lot of do or die mentality with them into the cold war and once they have that nuclear weapon in 49 all bets are off the table it's it's hey look we've got what you've got now you don't have that power over us. And don't get, don't get me wrong. Uh, in, as early as late World War II, the Russians knew there was nuclear weapons being worked on. They knew that there were other scientists working on them. They just didn't know how to get them. They had their own intelligence um, assets in the U.S., in Britain, and in Germany to an extent. But that's why everybody rushed for their German scientists. It wasn't just us that got guys and sent them down to Arkansas. We got, or the Soviet Union also got their own German scientists and got their own intelligence and their own people to bring them, you know, the nuclear weapons later on in 49. But they, that during that time and that gap, I think they guessed correctly. While, while you have guys like Patton um, and later on, we see it from MacArthur, especially in Korea with you know the infamous going all the way to the Yalu and, and nuking China incident and all that. I think they also were able to see despite Stalin's mistrust of Truman they were able to see that those guys were outliers. They, they realized that people like Patton and MacArthur and the, the super war hawk types who were, who were all about dropping nukes or all about rearming the Germans and fighting the Russians, um, they realized that those guys were outliers and the majority of the military and the political establishment did not want to get into another war. Soviet Union didn't either, don't get me wrong. But they, I think they all knew that and they hedged their bets on it and they for the most part, they, they were right, but they, their intel is not, they, they're not operating in a vacuum. They, they see these things happening. They have boots on the ground or, or guys on the ground to observe these things, hear what's going on in inner circles and realize that, that a lot of these angry, loud guys are just that they're angry and loud. They're, they may not be the majority. 
So we just, when I started, when the first question here I talked about or asked when the Cold War started, I was convinced you were going to say something around 1945-ish, maybe a couple of years prior, but you went back to the 1900s. So we just hit, we're coming up on an hour, so we'll probably wrap it up here for this one, but <laughs> we just hit, you know, 50 years all the way up to 1949 of kind of the lead up to, I mean, to the point, I think it's a good stopping point, right? So you just got nuclear yeah. weapons. Um, and I, I imagine a lot changes after that. So maybe we'll have to have to put a uh, at least a part two on the books and get back to this. Definitely, man. I'm all for it. Well, Ian, thanks so much for jumping on. Um, before you go, you want to give out your uh, your Instagram account. Ian's got some really cool stuff. Uh, he's got a ton of relics. There's a video here, so I can see them all in the background. A ton of military relics, and he's got some really cool stuff on Instagram that uh, dives into the details on each one of these. So I'll put the account in the show notes, but if you want to throw that handle out here real quick. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Ivy underscore Vine underscore military. It's just a little Instagram I started not too long ago um, for my personal use. I got a large collection of stuff, a lot of Cold War, a lot of earlier, a lot of middle. Um, and it's, it's really just an accountability thing for me so I can kind of research more and better appreciate the stuff I've acquired over the last few years and kind of share them with people who, if you got any questions about them, feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to talk about them. Love it. Yeah, we'll put the uh, put the link in the show notes here. But Ian, thanks for jumping on, man. We will definitely do a part two. Absolutely, man. I look forward to it. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.